Hello, listeners. A quick note on what you're about to hear. Willow and I sat down to record Call of Cthulhu's first episode, and when we'd finished, she sent me the audio tracks that she had recorded. They were both the same, and only from part of the conversation. Apparently, in saving the audio tracks, she'd accidentally written over a massive chunk of the episode, and so her audio was lost forever. We will be redoing the first Call of Cthulhu episode, so don't worry. It will be recorded and it will be put out, just not today. But what I went and did was edit down some of my comments that I have preserved, because my side of the conversation is, is recorded, into a brief introduction to the story focused on H.P. Lovecraft's biography. It's a quick bio, more of an overview. Uh, it's kind of just the comments that I was making to Willow as we were discussing, and so I sort of turned them into this little mini monologue. So that's what this is, what you'll be hearing. It's not ideal, but I wanted to release something, and I figured this was better than nothing, and when we finally release the first Call of Cthulhu episode, we'll just be able to jump right in with the story. So... My apologies for the technical difficulties. I hope this is an adequate replacement for what you expect this week, if you expected anything this week. And we will see you guys all next time, soon, I hope, when it's Del Toro time. This is uh, quite the week to be doing this episode because Lovecraft Country just premiered on HBO and it's all about that Lovecraft and Lovecraft stuff. It's kind of it's interesting because suddenly conversations about Lovecraft have started up again because of Lovecraft Country based on the book by Matt Ruff, which tells the story of, of an African-American family and their experiences basically encountering Lovecraft and all of uh, Lovecraft's cre creatures in the 1960s during like the height of like civil unrest and racial tensions and bringing Lovecraft's racism to the forefront. But it also means that every single person uh, who has to who comments on this feels like they are the first people in the world to reveal to the public that Lovecraft was racist. And they all approach it with this like, we'll get a load of this. Did you? And I'm like, yeah, we know. We know. It's it's been public knowledge since the 1920s. <laughs> Even Lovecraft's friends were calling him out for his BS back in the day like this was no like it was no small part of his personality but it also wasn't just an, a, a product of the times like the racism that shows up in his writing is fairly commonplace for pulp fiction like it's st it's still fairly commonplace for pulp fiction like it's that whole like ooh, the natives are restless kind of racism where like people who are more quote-unquote primitive are closer to the spiritual realm and you see that you still see that in 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 genre writing the notion that like the less advanced people are the ones who are more in touch with the earth but his stuff went a little further beyond that but still like i feel like when people talk about lovecraft's racism they tend to miss the forest through the trees because they tend to paint him as as just a racist when he was also like a xenophobe and an anti-Semite <laughs> and uh, a person who was horribly afraid of, of, of advances in, in certain types of technology while also like promoting advances in other types of technology. We'll get into that. But before we do get into it, uh, hey, everyone, I'm Phil and it's Del Toro time.
Uh, H.P. Lovecraft was born in 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. His father was sent to a mental asylum when he was like three years old, and he died there a few years later, I think when Lovecraft was like eight, uh, most likely from syphilis, which he most likely passed on to Lovecraft's mother, who eventually herself was institutionalized and then died, not of syphilis, but she died from a, like an operation she had to get in in the hospital. Uh, so which means that Lovecraft was essentially raised uh, by his two aunts and his grandfather, his grandfather Whipple, which I did do looking at, I was like, okay, so what was the guy's real real name? Like Whipple, what, no, his real name was Whipple. His name was Whipple Van Vuren. And so young Howard Phillips Lovecraft was raised, and, and they were a wealthy family. These people had money. And they were New England, which accounts for a lot of his racism because they were very sheltered. And he was probably raised, you know, being taught that he was white and perfect and of money. And he could trace his lineage back to these so-and-sos and who's a fudge. And then everything went to heck because his grandfather died. And his grandfather was like his best friend. Grandfather died. The aunts totally bungled their, their finances. And they lost pretty much everything and were thrown into like into like not being destitute but kind of having to beg relations and friends to help keep them afloat and and in lovecraft by the way like hb lovecraft was smart he was reading before he was one year old he was composing poetry by the time he was three when he was six he started composing a poem that was a that condensed the narrative of like the odyssey into a 80 some line rhyming poem. It's the earliest thing we have of his that survives. And it's a like 80 some line rhyming poem that is tells the story of the Odyssey that he finished when he was nine. The guy was smart. So, and he and he he loved science. He loved uh like the tales of like the Arabian Nights. He came up with a name for himself that so that he could write like Tales of the Arabian Nights himself called Al Abdul Al-Hazred was his pen name, which became the name of the guy who wrote the Necronomicon and his later writings. And he was just this precocious kid who wanted to be a journalist. He wanted to he wanted to write about science and he discovered a love of the pulps, uh, Lord Dunsany, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And so he was kind of writing journalism and writing for these amateur these amateur publications that publish their own writings and he was just kind of no he kind of built a reputation for himself but he was also always sick so he never went to school because he was always at home ill so he never really made friends he eventually uh, started publishing stories in the local pulps but never really that successfully he never made much money off of his writing he ended up marrying a woman who was many years his senior they moved to new york but then she ended up moving away and he lived in Brooklyn for for a time and he hated it and that's really where his like racism just congealed and festered because suddenly he was surrounded by immigrants and people he considered beneath himself and instead of getting to know his neighborhood he just became more and more resentful of living destitute oh also he was always he was so sick and so sensitive to his environment that he couldn't be in temperatures below like 70 degrees before having like severe physical reactions to the cold. And the colder he got, he would start throwing up. He would start having seizures. He couldn't function outside. Like So like living in New England, oh, also fish made him ill. Like just being around fish made him totally sick. So living in New England, this was like the worst possible combination. And so his resentment of and terror of the outside world just grew and grew and grew. He refused to start like, he, and because he he had that thing where he, because he was so smart, 
no one's opinions could sway him because he was smart. And so he just assumed that he was right about the world, even though he was terrified of it. But he also made a name for himself helping other, like if you were a fan of his and people, he, he had this sort of little fan base. People would write to him and be like, hey. And so he would write back. And he had he had so much correspondence. And one of the reasons that he stands out as particularly racist is because we have so much of his correspondence. I believe at one point he we had more correspondence from him in existence than I think any other writer in history. Uh, over I think we I think calculated he wrote over 100,000 letters in his lifetime. And not short letters either, like massive missives to people about his opinions, about his thoughts, with advice, helping people out. Anyone could write to him and ask for help writing. And he'd be like, all right, let's do this. Here's my writing helps. People would send him rough drafts and he would completely rewrite them and be like, publish it under your name. And, and, and not just men either, but like kids and women and just anyone looking for help. He was just so enthusiastic about helping people write. So these were the good sides of Lovecraft. He was a, he was a, he was gregarious and friendly. And he would, if he went traveling, he would try to meet people that he had, he had developed these correspondences with. He had a lot of friendships. Uh, he had a lot of friendships with some racists. <laughs> <laughs> Two, uh, like uh, like uh, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, was like his best friend. And when Robert E. Howard killed himself, it really hit Lovecraft like hard. It was it was like rough on Lovecraft. So we know all this because we have all this correspondence. But yes, uh, he wrote some terrible things about uh, about black people, about Jewish people. Even though his wife was Jewish, um, one of the reasons he left her was because his aunts were like, "You can't." She's a shop girl, and you can't uh, be with a woman who's <clears throat> of a certain persuasion. Also, he may have been gay or he may have been asexual. We never know. Uh, the only thing we know about his marriage was that his wife was like, things weren't good in the bedroom. <laughs> so uh, he may have just married her because that's what you were supposed to do, and it didn't work out. Uh, but that's that's kind of Howard Phillips Lovecraft in a nutshell. He was just... I mean, if you, there's a two-volume biography on him by S.T. Joshi, which you know, if you're interested in in learning a lot about Lovecraft, there's there's a lot out there. But yeah, he was he was friends with a bunch of science fiction fantasy writers, uh, people who called him out for his BS, uh, even though he uh, he never really he he would argue about it. And uh, there's you know, people say like his views softened over the years, and they did as he sort of, especially once like. Once Hitler started rising to power and Lovecraft started seeing like what was going on in Europe, he was like, uh, uh. he also was a staunch sort of a socialist, but only because he didn't think that people should have to work because he hated having to work. Um, so he was like, we should all be on vacation 24 hours a day. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm kind of a socialist. But yeah, in 1926, he wrote Call of Cthulhu. It took him a while to get it published because it's it's weird it's it's weird and it doesn't really seem to appeal to like just people who are looking for action and adventure but the horror is slow and creeping he sent it to weird tales and farnsworth wright was like no no not going to publish this and so uh donald wandry who was a who was a who's a writer and one of lovecraft's friends uh wrote to farnsworth wright and was like uh you know Howard is is shopping this story around and people are really interested in it. And then Farnsworth Wright was like, oh, we got to publish it first. And that's why they published Call of Cthulhu ever. I guess the only reason I got it because Farnsworth Wright didn't want to get scooped on this story that Donald Wandry was like lying about. So uh, he died in horrible pain from uh, like cancer of the cancer of the intestine. He was not doing well. He would have faded into obscurity if it were not for his friends who insisted on gathering his his works together and publishing them under Arkham House uh, Publishing. And then he lived on. And 
one of the things he left behind was this story, uh, The Call of Cthulhu, which we're going to be covering in several parts um, because it's a long short story. <laughs> and I've always liked this story, but it, it, it does have its problematic its problematic elements, which we will, of course, cover. But it did start something that has since gone on to be just basically almost its own genre. And that's it. That's that's what I have. So if you want to hear the rest of it, just stay tuned and we'll be dropping a new episode of It's Still Toro Time pretty darn soon. Thanks so much.